A bill with bipartisan backing would give substantial raises to federal firefighters. Their union says they make close to minimum wage for this dangerous work and that they haven't had a raise in a generation. Here with more on the Federal Firefighter Pay Equity Act, the government affairs representative of the International Association of Firefighters, Greg Russell. Mr. Russell, good to have you with us. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me in. And tell us the situation for the federal firefighting force. I guess two of the departments each have firefighters, about 5,001 and about 12,000, I think, in the other. What is their pay situation now? Well, so let's define who the firefighters are. There are approximately 9,500 federal firefighters that answer 911 calls on federal installations all across the United States. They're located in 46 states, and they are an all-hazards firefighting force. So they respond to fire emergencies, vehicle accidents, hazardous material spill, and emergency medical service calls. Their situation with their pay is this. They earn approximately two-thirds of the hourly rate paid to a general schedule government employee. Their average hourly rate across the United States is $16.26 an hour. In Hawaii, where you have an incredibly high cost of living, the average hourly rate is $14.55. Compare that to Mississippi, generally a smaller economy, if you will. In Mississippi, it's $15.85 an hour is the average hourly rate for these firefighters. So we need to address their hourly pay, which will help with recruitment and retention. We're currently seeing between 15 and 20% vacancies across the federal government. And again, this is just structural firefighters. This does not include the wildland. Our firefighters here do not primarily respond to wildland fires. That's a complete separate federal occupation. At that pay level, then, how does that compare to, say, if you're in Honolulu or if you're in a city, that municipal fire department levels of pay? The pay is approximately a third to half of the neighboring municipality. And oftentimes, our firefighters, federal firefighters, are responding hand-in-hand with the municipality. You know, in our D.C. metro area where I'm located, we have the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, the National Institutes of Health, and the Department of Navy, all located within Montgomery County, Maryland. As part of a mutual aid agreement, those agencies respond to fires and incidents in Montgomery County. So they're standing side by side with Montgomery County firefighters saving the lives and property of the Maryland citizen. This is not just uh, in Maryland. This happens all over. In Fed Fire San Diego, they respond to incidents with the municipalities there. We have to do this firefighting evolution by joining our forces together. There is no way that one entity alone can handle all their emergencies. We have this integrated mutual aid system, which takes our firefighters from the federal facility 
out into the municipal sector and then also brings the municipal sector into the Fed sector. Tell us more about the Federal Firefighter Pay Equity Act. What would that specifically do and does it go far enough in your view? The Federal Firefighter Pay Equity Act is an incremental step of moving the ball forward. So that bill would level the playing field for the hourly wage when you compare grades. A firefighter is typically a GS-5 to a GS-7. Again, they're making two-thirds of what the typical GS-5, GS-7 makes, so they will see their pay elevated to the same hourly rate. Another flaw, if you will, in the current benefit scheme is federal firefighters do not receive full compensation or full consideration for their high three when their retirement benefits are calculated. We intend to increase their high three figure to the amount they earn for their regularly reoccurring 72-hour work week. A federal firefighter typically works 3,744 hours a year. However, not the total of that 3,744 hours counts towards their retirement. Each pay period, they're reduced approximately 19 hours when it comes to the retirement calculation. Well, over 26 pay periods, 19 hours adds up to a substantial amount, which lowers their high three calculation about five to $7,000, depending on their grade. We're speaking with Greg Russell. He's government affairs representative of the International Association of Firefighters. And just give us a sense of how they live when they're on duty, because uh, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, and there are volunteers and there are full-time, you know, sworn firefighters, and they have nice firehouses. And, you know, it's almost like you see on these TV shows. And when a fire comes, they're ready. But meanwhile, life is not bad in the firehouse. What is it like for the feds? So the federal fire sector is very much similar to the municipal sector. One thing that I will share that is different than what you see on TV is most of the federal facilities are well dated. For example, we still have a fire station fully occupied and in service 24 hours a day here in the District of Columbia that was built in the 1800s. That building is at the Washington Navy Yard. There are other departments out there that I am aware of that are living in cramped quarters because the buildings are so old that they haven't kept up with the modern apparatus. You know, imagine the size of a vehicle, a fire engine from the 1950s, and compare that to a fire engine you see today. The current fire engine's probably two feet wider and six to eight feet longer, and maybe a foot or two taller. That takes up valuable real estate, if you will, and what sacrifices is the living quarters. Federal firefighters do not enjoy single occupant bunk rooms. Most of them have three, four, even 10, 12 firefighters sleeping in a single room, and that is if they can sleep and they are working 24 hours a day, so they have kitchen facilities, and the kitchens are often dated, very small, cramped. Many fire stations do not have training facilities like you find in modern fire stations. So 
as far as fire station facilities go, across the board, they could use modernization. We're talking about all agencies. So the largest employer of federal firefighters is the Department of Defense, followed by Veterans Affairs. But again, you have federal firefighters at Commerce, at Health and Human Services, at Interior, at Energy, Department of Homeland Security with Coast Guard facilities. So they're across the board when it comes to agencies. But DOD is by far the largest employer, and they're the ones suffering the highest attrition at this time. You know, we have the Norfolk Navy base, the largest naval mm -hmm. base in the free world, currently has between 50 and 60 vacant firefighter positions. Folks do not want to go to work for the Navy who are paying wages substantially below the municipal counterparts and our federal firefighters, again, like I said, work a 72-hour work week as opposed to a typical municipal employee who works between 52 and 56 hours each week. So we work more hours for less money in the federal sector. And that's a third part of our bill. The third part of our bill would direct the Office of Personnel Management to determine the maximum number of hours a federal firefighter can be regularly scheduled, provided that maximum is no more than 60 hours. So the Office of Personnel Management could determine that 56, which is comparable to municipal firefighters, is appropriate and set it at that. But at no case would it be more than 60 hours. Right, so two and a half days. And we should point out that 3,744 hours a year at $16 an hour, say, that only comes out to just below $60,000. So it's not like they're getting giant pay here for these long hours. That's correct. How do these firefighters pay compare to the federal wildfire firefighters who are having a temporary pay boost through the so, one of the bills and that's about to expire at the end of the fiscal year? Correct. These firefighters did not receive that approximately $20,000 a year pay boost. These firefighters still are making just above minimum wage in many states. In comparison, their gross salaries are about the same when you consider all the overtime that goes into wildland firefighting. Sure. And getting back to this bill, does it have a Senate and a House counterpart? And what do you think the prospects are right now, given Congress? So it is a bipartisan bill in the House, and we are in discussion with folks on the Senate side. At present, I am optimistic that we can gain some traction. Today, from what I understand, the House will take up the National Defense Authorization Act, and that will include pay boost for our low-ranking military people. Well, when you consider that these federal firefighters are sworn to protect those military people, they deserve a wage that is comparable, if not more, for somebody that risked their life day in and day out than a typical uh, military member on the home front. Uh, when they're in a combat zone, they certainly deserve every penny they earn, but many military occupations in the homeland are not in a risky position, whereas firefighting, regardless of state, municipal, or federal, is a 
group one carcinogen as determined by the International Agency for Research on Cancer. That means just by being a firefighter, you have the likelihood of contracting cancer on par with somebody that has unprotected exposure to nuclear energy. All right. Well, let's hope that bill has a good chance. Sounds like they deserve that pay raise, that's for sure. Greg Russell is government affairs representative of the International Association of Firefighters. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. 
You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. 
at the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.